If you want to follow where I am reading from, it is in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and verse 37. Let's pray. And Father, we are always very encouraged to hear the creative things that your church does to connect your grace to people in need of grace. So prosper, Lord, the work of Matthew 25 and the many other ways in which your church formally and informally connects with the people you love, with the message of the gospel. And we ask, Father, that the Spirit who inspired your word to be written will help us understand it now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So I'm reading from Luke 11, verse 37. And Luke writes this, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you, gave, you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over before without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all, Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So reading God's word, does it ever stir up questions for you? I hope it does, because I hope that one stirs up questions for you, because that doesn't sound like Jesus' usual ministry, does it? He appears to come over as harsh and judgmental. Is this the same man who offered forgiveness to the woman caught in adultery? 
Is this the same man who, when he visited Zacchaeus, filled him with such relief and joy at the prospect of a second chance? Is this the same man whose ministry was marked with love and compassion? doesn't sound like it, does it? In fact, some people think in the early church that it's so out of sync with Jesus' normal way that the church made it up just to get at the Pharisees. And Jesus didn't say it at all. Actually, you find it in Matthew as well. So it's pretty sure that Jesus did say it. Jesus knows how to handle people. He knows what to say. Uh, he's always uncompromising. I can find no way, no place in which Jesus rebukes a woman. There's a good statistic for you, isn't there? No woman is rebuked in the New Testament. But he's happy to talk uncompromisingly to people. Do you remember the rich young ruler? And Jesus was prepared to let him go rather than compromise his message of the gospel. He's quite prepared to challenge his disciples and confront them when their lack of belief proves that they're not quite in line with him. He can abrupt, be abrupt with those who should know better. So when Nicodemus comes asking him what appear to be theological questions, he's quite sharp with him. So it helps us to know who he's talking to when he's talking like this. And of course you've got that in the second verse I read. It's with a Pharisee. This Pharisee obviously wants to continue a conversation that started before and invites Jesus into his house. And it's because of something that happens then that Jesus responds to a Pharisee. These were men who prided themselves in keeping the law and thus being in favour with God. And we're getting to the nub of it. These were men who reveled in the respect of common folk and who were impressed with the Pharisees' apparent holiness and righteousness. These are men who should have known the score theologically, but didn't. They were completely wrong. And their attitude at the end of this tirade of Jesus, well, it's not quite a tirade, strong words perhaps, indicates where their hearts are. Now, we just, I just love communion services. I really love communion services. But they always convict me. Happily, they always lift me up too. Because the older I get, the more I know it's not just about the things I do and say that reveal my sin, but my heart reaction too. So I cannot have sinned in a physical way in certain areas, but I know my heart is as prone to sin as ever it was. Therefore I know there's no health in me. So when I come to communion, I am so glad God isn't just dealing with the outward, but the inward, giving me a chance again. So communion always convicts me, but encourages me. So this sequence of woes arises from an invitation to lunch by the Pharisee. And Jesus, when he goes to recline at the table, doesn't wash his hands. And we're not talking about hygiene here. It's not just getting germs off your fingers that we're talking about. It's ceremonial washing because Pharisees believed as you lived around and mixed it with other people, you picked up the sinful behavior. So they had a ceremonial wash before they ate to wash off, as it were, the sinfulness that they picked up on the way through. And they're surprised that Jesus didn't. So 
okay, he's talking to Pharisees and experts of the law, so that lets us off the hook, doesn't it? Of course, because they're not Pharisees or experts in the law. But he not only talks to the Pharisees, he talks about them. And Matthew, in his list of woes that parallels this one, calls them hypocrites. Woe to you, you Pharisees and teachers of the law, you hypocrites, he says. Well, that word means to act apart, to pretend to be one thing when you're another. It's an accusation that people often fling at us church people, don't they? It's full of, we're full of hypocrites. Well, sometimes it's true. But to be honest, everybody is, isn't they? Aren't they? It's not the prerogative of church folk. Non-church folk are pretty hypocritical too, aren't they? If the papers are to be believed, anyway. Most of us live one life and pretend another. But actually the word woe here carries a feeling not of a wagging finger, so much as alas, sadness, regret, compassion. It's not a threat. Jesus is profoundly disappointed in what he finds. That's what he's saying. So it sounds, as I read it, as if it's coming over harshly, as a threat that Jesus is profoundly disappointed. And if we were reading Matthew's version, it would end with, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, don't you understand the time of God's coming to you? But you won't. How I long to gather you under my wings, but you won't. There's deep sadness here. So this isn't Jesus merely being harsh because he's got fed up with these Pharisees. There's something more profound here. The thing about it is, you see, legalism, which is the besetting sin of the Pharisees, leads to hypocrisy. What is legalism? Well, Jesus highlights the difference between the two of them. They concentrate on the externals. He didn't wash his hands. While he's working on the internals. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. They are bothered by what a man does or doesn't do. Jesus is bothered by who a man is or isn't. And this develops a saying that you remember God spoke to Samuel when he had to choose a king called David. As he goes through the elder sons of Jesse, he mistakenly interprets their stature, size, appearance as being the indicating factor. But God says, man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. Now, that's not a rebuke. What else can we look at? We cannot look at the heart, can we? So God's merely giving us information. Only God can look at the heart. We cannot. But it's also a warning that we can be misled if we only look at the outside. So we can clean the outside of the dish. Indeed, there's nothing else we can do. We can't clean the inside of the dish. And here's where the problem arises. So when Jesus speaks to the people on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you commit murder. And you notice what he's doing? Do you notice what he's doing? He's saying, you have a standard that you think you can keep. If you don't murder, you've kept that law. I'm telling you this, I'll raise the bar. 
In fact, I'll raise it so high that no one of you will be able to keep it. It will be impossible. The first thought of hatred against another is equivalent to murder. And you suddenly can hear all the jaws drop, can't you? Who has not hated, even fleetingly, a brother? So merely not doing things in public is not the answer. That's called behavioural science and it works so far but not far enough. Jesus came to change the heart. But the thing is, the Pharisees are caught up with the externals. And if we understand that it's not just about the externals but about the internals, we understand that we need God's grace, don't we? Every time I come to communion, I'm just overwhelmed by the grace of God. Who will deliver me from this life of sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Isn't that your heart too? Can you cleanse your heart? Can you stop yourself thinking things you shouldn't think? You can't, can you? If you do know the secret, please come and tell me because you'll be the first person in creation who can. And this is what Jesus came for. So to keep on the externals only, do you see, puts grace on the back foot. Because we won't look at our heart but merely do it outwardly, we erect around ourselves standards and we lower the bar and say, so long as I keep the standards, do X, Y and Z, God will love me and I will be a holy person, which is what they've done. So constructed around the law of God, all these other laws. Now, was the law of God ever intended to save anybody? Can you tell me that answer? That's not a rhetorical question. I want an answer. Was the law of God intended to save anyone? The answer is an unequivocal no. I hope you understand that. So what's the point of making hundreds of regulations to keep the law if keeping the law was never the point? Do you see the confusion here? They have built up this huge plethora of regulations to keep the law that could never be kept by anybody apart from Jesus. It's an impossibility. So what they've done is create the impression that you can live by keeping the law. And in so doing, move people not to grace, but away from grace. What was the object of the law, my friends? Then? The object of the law was to tell us that we are sinners. And there is no hope. That's the purpose of the law. Because you'll know that Exodus... 14 and 15, where the people are delivered from the Egypt, comes before Exodus 20 when the law is given. So they were saved before the law came about. The law was intended so we would know we cannot save ourselves. If we think we can save ourselves in any way, what do we need Jesus for? Isn't that true? So not only are these people keeping themselves from the grace of God, they're keeping other people from the grace of God. Now can you hear the heart of Jesus in this? He has come 
Not to say keep the law, try harder, do better, and woe betide any preacher who stands here and says to you folks, try harder and do better. That is a contradiction of the gospel. It is pointless me saying that to you. That's not what Jesus came. He did not come to condemn, but to save. So the message of God in the gospel is, come to me, all you who need to be saved. But to do that, we first have to abandon all our own attempts at salvation. And this list of woes here just demonstrates the kind of ways in which these people pretend that they're holy and righteous. And Jesus is trying to get under their skin. So this undermines the grace. We could say, where is the grace of God in the attitude of Jesus here? But it is full of the grace of God because his heart breaks when people try of their own volition to keep the law. So as you and I head into this fresh week, we are in danger always of thinking, if I don't do this and I do do that, I will earn credit with God. If I don't do this and I do do that, I will be holy, I will be righteous. And the danger is if we believe that, we will have pride when we do it, which of course is sin, and we will be hugely disappointed when we don't do it, which of course leads us to despair. Either route leads us into danger, doesn't it? But if I start this week saying, Lord, there's no way I can keep your righteousness because I know even if I don't kill anyone this week, I still have murdered if I think foul thoughts about another. Lord, without you, I cannot do it this week. I really can't. And if I start the week in that place, where am I going to turn? Well, either away in despair and do something drastic, which is what some people do, or I will turn to God and say, Lord, help. And my view of God then will be most important. The Pharisee saw God as far off, lifted up, and judgmental. Not a God to approach. And when Jesus comes, God to be touched, they completely miss him. And assume he cannot be the God they think they know. He has come to show that there's no way of salvation without grace. And even Christians long in the tooth, as many of us are, can still fall into this trap of thinking it's all about our own effort. And this teacher of the law says, well, when you talk to the Pharisees, you're, you're insulting us too, so this is not about me, is it? And Jesus says, oh, yes, it is. Because what's in common with a Pharisee and an expert in the law is they both teach the law. They both fall into this trap of trying to help people keep the law as a way of salvation. Now, we teach the law of God not as a way of salvation, but as a way of living out the life God has given us. I'm not in any way 
or any stretch of the imagination saying abandon your Bibles and go for it, do whatever you like because you can't help it anyway. What I'm saying is in light of this huge sacrifice on yours and my behalf that God offers us a fresh start, a completely fresh start and what's more the power to live it. Then we say, how then, Lord, shall I live? And then we say, look at the word of God, and we find out how we live. We can't do it on our own. We do it in his strength. So this teacher of the law falls into the same category. Let me give you an example of what a teacher of the law would have said to people in his day as to what he may or may not do on the Sabbath. To give you an example of the kind of pharisaical ways in which people can tie themselves up in knots. You see, there will be Christians today who for one reason or another have chosen not to join with the people of God today. Isn't that true? Not because they can't, but because they won't. It's true, isn't it? For all sorts of reasons. I tell you what, some of them will find something goes wrong today. And some of those people who find something goes wrong today when they didn't go to church when they could will say, I'm being punished because I didn't go to church. Have you ever heard people talk like that? Now what kind of view of God did they have? That keeping his law is the only way of bringing his pleasure. So will they turn to that kind of God? No, because they expect a whipping, won't they? So their view will keep them away from God, will make them even less inclined to go next week because they'll feel that God is just waiting to get at them. And if any speaker like me turns up and says, woe to you, they'll think, oh my goodness, I'm being hammered by God again, which will make them even less likely to turn to God. you see the process? When all the time God says, come to me, doesn't he? Come to me. I'm not suggesting next week we all choose not to come. Please don't think that. But that kind of perverted thinking actually turns people away from God, not to him. On the Sabbath, they taught, a man may not carry a burden. That seems very clear, doesn't it? In his right hand or in his left hand, in his bosom or on his shoulder. But he may carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or in his ear, or in his hair, or in his wallet, so long as the mouth is held downwards, or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal. Huh? Do you see why Jesus said, Whoa? Well, how are ordinary people going to know what can they do on a Sabbath day? Because they're trying to help them not do work on the Sabbath day. Do not work on the Sabbath, said God. So they're trying to help them. But do you see the pickle you get into? You do, don't you? All this nitty-gritty. So you, can end, you, you end up with people in despair, giving up. Because they're, they're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. And what's more, the legalist will find a loophole somewhere there, won't he? So he can do whatever he wants on a Sabbath, can't he? So he takes off his shoe and puts what he wants to carry in his shoe and holds it in his right hand. He's not allowed to hold it in his right hand, but he's not holding it in his right hand. He's put it in his shoe. You've got a loophole. That's what happens. We try and find things 
that we can get round the law of God. So instead of opening up the word of God to the genuine seeker, they're closing it down against a person who genuinely wants to know. Which is why Jesus in Luke 15, just a few more chapters further on, says, you want to know the kind of God you have who receives people who know they've sinned, know they've fallen short of God, know they can't do it, whatever they try to do? You know the kind of response they get from that side of God? Otherwise we're damned, aren't we? We're hopeless. David, a man with a soft and teachable heart. I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. David, a man of weakness and sin, is caught in an outrageous act of sin, adultery and murder by Nathan who says, You are the man! And David's response is, can you tell me what David's response was? What was his response? A broken heart, wasn't it? He crumpled there and then, metaphorically onto his knees, prostrated himself before God. Psalm 51 tells you all about it. This man, in the aftermath, he's broken hearted to think he has offended God. But what is he doing? As he falls on his face before God, he's pleading for mercy. If you read his psalm, Psalm 51 is a New Testament psalm. He picks up things that won't yet come into being for hundreds of years. He says, have mercy on me. It's not a sacrifice you want, but a contrite heart. But I haven't got one, Lord. Create in me a new heart, O God, he says. It will be years later that Ezekiel will say, I will give them a new heart. And Jesus will say, unless you have a new heart, you can't see the kingdom of God. There's a man who knew the grace of God. A man who knew what he'd done, but he turned to God for grace. Not to say, oh, how can I tidy up my life and do a bit more? What penance can I pay? And how many oxen can I kill? But a man who threw himself on the mercy of God. But when Jesus has gone through this, what's their response? These Pharisees and teachers of the law Verse 53, when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Their plan is to kill him because he's upset their program. He's shown them their hardness of their heart, but instead of calling on God for mercy, they kill the messenger. That's all they will do. So this is a message of grace. Legalism is a barrier to receiving the grace of God. So I hope you have godly habits. I hope you do do things that please God. But please, my friend, if somehow this week you don't manage to do the normal things you do, don't become a legalist. It will turn you away from God. Come back to God in mercy. If you aren't able to have your quiet time, every morning this week, in a way that really you would like to. Come back to God and seek his face. If somehow or other you fail him and disappoint your own standards, far less God's, come back to him for grace. We have just shared bread and wine, which speaks of the grace of God. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. This is life in all its fullness. 
So that's why he was hard on these guys. Because something had to crack the shell. Fortunately, the Bible tells us that some did become Christians. Some did believe. Many didn't. So let me encourage you and me this week as we head off to the new week. We're not going to make it on our own. You will not do it on your own. Oh, you may not know that until about Thursday or Friday. Oh, you may keep the externals, but watch your heart. But we have been given the wherewithal to do it as we trust in God. So that's why Paul says, walk in step with the Spirit every moment this week. And then we can live lives to God's glory. And then we won't be living one life and pretending another. We'll be living a life of integrity. It's the grace of God that keeps us, my friends. It is by grace you have been saved and it's by grace you are kept. And it's grace that will see you through to the end. Does that encourage you? I hope it does. Because we're being honest here. You're going to face things that will disappoint us and so forth. But it's grace that keeps you. Grace. And should someone else in this congregation offend you or hurt you, then knowing that we are also offenders kept only by the grace of God, we will have grace towards one another, won't we? Because we won't stand in judgment on each other. We'll say there, but for the grace of God, I would have gone. So we will act in grace towards one another. And as a community of grace, a community of forgivers, we will be living a life that people out there just need to see. Father, thank you for the grace of God revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. We know we need your grace. Pour your grace upon us, Lord, moment by moment this week. So instead of seeking to build our own structure of obedience, we can live from the inside out a life of grace to the praise of your glorious name. Lord, more grace, we say, and more power. Help us this week to live lives that reflect the grace of God, that we may be people who can extend that grace to others we meet this week. For your sake, Lord. Amen.